Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Psalms. We're continuing our series in the Psalms. We'll be in Psalm chapter 2 today. And if you don't have one and want to follow along with where we are, there is a black Bible, hopefully very close to you, under the chair racks. And we'll be on page 448. Page 448. Uh, This series, we're calling it Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And so what we're going to see again and again in the Psalms is this tension that we live with, that our emotions don't always line up with what we know to be true about an all-powerful, all-sovereign, gracious, loving God who is caring for us. That doesn't always seem to line up with the experience that we're going through. And so the psalmists will model for us a healthy spiritual life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to learn by watching what happens in the Psalms, we're going to learn how to worship. We're going to learn how to pray. We're going to learn how to fellowship with other people, how to counsel each other, um, how to be honest about what we're struggling with while still hoping in God, hoping in his final triumph. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are both uh, introductions, in a sense, to the book of Psalms. They, they fit together. They have some similar words. Uh, some some uh, commentators or scholars actually think it was like one that got broken up. As we studied, I really think they're, they're two separate psalms uh, that are made kind of like how you might make an album and you would have themes, you know, that go together with different songs. I, I see it more in that way, that they fit together. They, they're like a matched pair, and they give us a different view into important themes that will come up again and again throughout the psalms. So Psalm 1 was emphasizing that emotional honesty and that righteous man who, instead of delighting in sin delights in God and his word, and that struggle that we go through to be that righteous person that longs for God, delights in his word. Psalm 2 is going to talk about the specifics of God's plan to set up a kingdom here on earth, how he began to do that through his people, Israel, and how that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the one true king. And so this morning, we're calling the sermon on Psalm 2, Colliding Kingdoms. So as we continue with this, uh, this theme of collide, we're going to see the colliding kingdoms, this desire we have to be king, the desire that earthly kings have to rule the world. We're going to see that crashing together here in Psalm 2. Who is the true king? Is it me? Is it you? Is it the president of some other country? Is it uh, an empire that's, that's faded in the past? Who's the king? Who's in charge? That's the question being asked here. So let's read Psalm 2 together. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man who doesn't follow sin, but delights in God and his word. And now Psalm 2 ends with, blessed is this man, the one who takes refuge in the Lord. The fierce, furious God who is all holy, whose wrath is poured out against wickedness. Yet he's, he's the only refuge. He's the only place that's truly safe in this world. We'll pray and ask God to help us to um, unpack this a little bit more. If you'll pray with me. God, we, we ask you to help us this morning. We ask you to teach us this morning. We ask that your spirit would allow us to, to focus on what your word says. And God, we pray for our hearts that you would soften them so that we would no longer be raging against you, desiring to be kings, but you would allow us to submit to your perfect rule. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called King of the Hill. Y'all ever play that? King of the Hill? Great game, especially if you were the bigger kid, right? You would have fun climbing up to the top of the hill. Your other friends would come up and you'd push them down. Great, you know, great violent game that kids would play. Uh, I remember going out to this place where there was construction happening, the rock piles, and me and my buddies would be like, hey, let's go to the rock piles, and it was just hill after hill, and, you know, we'd, we'd get to claim our own hills, you know, and then no one would fight you because you had your own hill and we were all spread out, so then we'd have to go fight each other, and, you know, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun because we desired to be king, we wanted to dominate, we wanted to have our own piece of real estate, and what the Psalms are pointing out here in the starting point is that all the kings of the earth, the rulers of the nations, have that desire to be king of the hill. And broader than just their little space, they want to be king of the whole universe. They want to be king of the whole earth. And, and really, we're that way too. We don't want to, we don't want to just say, oh, this is, about, this is about those people, right? Those people that are politicians or leaders, you know, or kings or dictators. No, it's, it's us too, and that's reflected in the story of the scriptures. We were made to image God, to reflect him, to submit to him, and we've rebelled against that. I was listening to a sermon this week on Psalm 2, and the pastor quoted a book that he had read about a man observing a child on the subway sitting in her father's lap, like a small two-year-old child, sitting in her father's lap and actually slapping him, being angry with him, slapping her father, And the author was just observing how ironic that was. The child couldn't reach her father's face unless he picked her up and set her in his lap. And that's kind of what we're like. Like, we don't even exist apart from God's creation and his sustaining and his giving us breath. And yet, sitting in his lap, we reach up to slap him. And so I want to make sure that we're, we're listening to what the psalm says, that it's not just about rulers out there, kings out there. This is about every human being. We all desire to be king. We all desire to rule and to reign. And God's made us to be kings and queens of creation, but junior kings of queens in submission to him. We're to be his representatives. We're to honor him in what we do in this world. And so that's going to be the challenge for us. That's going to be the tension. The first thing that I want us to, to focus in on is the rebellious picture here, the, the rebellious kings. Those first three verses, it gives us a picture of rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's interesting, this word plot is the same word we saw last week, another clue that connects the two Psalms. It's the same word we saw last week for meditate on God's word. So remember last week I said this word 
is kind of an inarticulate, muttering, moaning, groaning sort of word. And so the righteous man we saw last week groans and mutters over God's word. We are to mutter God's word back to him. That's a, a habit that we should learn as we move through the Psalms. The opposite of that is muttering against God. And I want you to think about the lies that you mutter, the, the realities that you tell yourself that don't match with what God says. And you need to tear those down. You, you need to recognize what those are and say, this is not true. I'm, I'm saying that I can only be happy if I have this or if this happens, but that's not true. And that's really muttering against God. That's plotting against him. That's saying that I should be king or this should be king or that should be king. We have to recognize what those areas are in our life where we're saying things to ourselves that aren't true. That's really a big part of discipleship is learning to preach the gospel to yourself and learning to mutter God's word back to him instead of muttering the lies that we've been muttering since we were kids. And so the picture here is the people's muttering in vain, plotting in vain against God. It says in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. It's the desire to be free. I don't want to be chained. I'm going to burst the bonds. I'm going to cast these cords away. I don't want to be tied down. I want to be free and I want to do my own thing. And he says, we, they, are rebelling against the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the great I Am that appeared to Moses. They're rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. What does his anointed mean? Anybody remember anointed? This is an Old Testament practice of ceremonially setting someone aside. This word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. And it's uh, the New Testament word Christos, Christ. That means someone who's set aside. Someone who's been marked. Literally, it would be done with oil. They would use ceremonial oils. So in our day, we're, you know, we're all concerned about our aftershave lotion and our deodorant and our body spray and our lotions and all, you know, our hair conditioner and shampoos. We have all kinds of different, basically they would call them oils. We have these oils we are constantly anointing ourselves with. In an Old Testament context, that was a very special thing to practice that level of hygiene, right? And so it would be ceremonially done to special officers of the Lord. Priests, kings, rulers would be anointed. And so when the Bible talks about someone who's anointed, they're saying there's someone with an office. There's someone with a place of leadership. And so there were multiple anointed ones in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but Jesus is the great one. He's the ultimate anointed one. And what we see is those that rebel against God are also rebelling against those that God has ordained to lead. Those that God have said, uh, those people that God has said, this is, this is my person. This is the one I've installed here. We're going to talk about that aspect some more and how the interplay works between God's uh, earthly kings and Jesus is the ultimate king. We'll look at that in the next point. But I just want to point out that this rebellion against God is as old as Genesis chapter 3, right? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So this idea of a rebellious king I wanted to show you a picture of a snake so you'd remember the serpent in the garden. The serpent in the garden said that you can be like God. You can be independent. You can function without him. You don't have to obey him. You can be your own king. And the serpent's lie was that he doesn't want you to be your own king because he's, 
jealous and he's holding out on you and he doesn't really want your best. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. But you'll be happier if you do things on your own. And what I want you to do is I want you to connect the dots to every time we sin, we're choosing to be our own king. We're saying, God, I don't trust you to rule and reign properly. I trust me. And so I'm making this decision that I want this pleasure now. Whenever I sin, I'm saying, God, I know what is best for me. I don't trust what you say is best for me. And I want to enjoy this momentary pleasure, this fleeting idea, this comfort in whatever it is that I might be doing because I know better than you, because I'm king. And I want you to think about that the next time you sin. Maybe the next time after you sin, right? It might be you know, hard to think about that ahead of time. Maybe after you sin and you're repenting, say, why did I do that? That, that was so stupid. Say, God, I'm sorry that I did that. That was stupid. I was trusting myself instead of trusting you. But I want you to begin to associate that with your sin. When we cut corners, when we do things that we know we shouldn't do, recognize that we're, we're saying, I'm king. God's not trustworthy. I can't trust him to run the universe. I've got to run it myself. We're climbing up in his lap so that we can slap his face. And that's what sin is. Sin is basically a breach of trust. And when we sin, when we rebel, we're telling ourselves, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. We're saying, I want to be free. I want to choose my own destiny. I want to do my own thing. But it never ends up in freedom. Sin is always slavery. And so the New Testament appeals to us, the Old Testament appeals to us saying, don't go that way because it's the way of death. It's the way of destruction. That's what we saw in the end of Psalm 1. It's this fleeting life. It's, it's a life of just a throwaway life. It's the chaff instead of the grain. It doesn't count. It doesn't last. It doesn't make an impact. You're not going to find the joy that you want there. And so I want to appeal to you this morning. If you're, if you're stuck in habits of sin, find someone to help you out of that. But recognize you're, you're a slave. It's not bringing you freedom. It's bringing you slavery. And so we're not here to judge you in that sin. We're here to say that the God of the universe comes after us in our sin and offers himself to set you free. He takes the weight of that sin upon himself on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that we're about to read about here in chapter 2. A God who hates wickedness. He hates it so much he took the full penalty of it himself. So the offer of the gospel is that by trusting in him, that sin is forgiven and that he can begin to set you free and to begin to heal you from those sinful habits, those sinful addictions. The next thing that we see is that God sets up ambassador kings. He has representatives. He has anointed ones. He has ones that he's marked and says, you're mine. You're going to represent me here in this world. And what I want you to see is that that works at kind of a very small micro level and a a big scale. We are all anointed. We're, We're all marked by God. We see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's people in the Old Testament were to be God's treasured possession. You're, you're to be my special people, he would say again and again. So when people see you, they, they will see me. And that's really what all humans are designed for. If you go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, we're all designed to bear his image. You see this in the church. Again, the same kind of language used for Israel is used for the church in First Peter. We're a kingdom of priests. We're this special chosen people. We're to represent him. So we're all marked in that sense. We are all to be his ambassador. 
But in the process of how God was unfolding his plan in the world, he set up Israel as a specific people. So I'm going to mark you as a people who are not strong by your own strength, but you're a weak people. You're a small tribe. And so I'm going to do this miraculous thing so that everybody knows it's me and not you. So that people can see me instead of seeing your strength in this. And I'm going to set up a king, and that king is to represent me. And in the Old Testament, they would say, he's got to write down my law, and he's got to be the kind of person talked about last week in chapter 1. He's got to be that righteous man that mutters over God's word and knows it and records it and writes it and learns it. And so he would anoint this king. And many people believe that this psalm was a coronation psalm for the ceremonies of setting up the new king in Israel, that they would sing this psalm. This would be part of the ceremony of putting the kingly robe and crown on the new king over Israel, reminding him of the great weight that he is supposed to bear of reflecting God's image in the world, showing people who the real king is, pointing people to God instead of to himself. So let's read this text here. It says in verse 4, Psalm 2, 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he says to all the other kings of the world, No, you're not the king. You're not in charge. I'm the king, and I've set up my ambassador in Zion. I'm going to work in this very specific way through this people called Israel, and I'm going to teach people about who I am there. That's what I'm going to do. Zion is Jerusalem. It's the mountain where the temple was. So I'm going to set up my kingdom there, and I'm going to begin to communicate by grace through my word in this kingdom. And I'm going to communicate who I am. And he says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7 says, then, switching back to the uh, author of the psalm, so that was God saying, I've set my king on Zion. Now the author of the psalm speaks up and says, hey, it's me, right? King David speaks up and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So this promise given to David to rule and to reign, he's referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to look that up later, that's the the place where the promises were made to David that he would be this great eternal kingdom that would be set up, that his descendants would rule forever and he would have this great uh, worldwide kingdom. And we know that wasn't completely fulfilled through David. And we know it was closer than ever fulfilled through Solomon, right? He had this incredible kingdom that was magnificent. When you read the Old Testament, people came from far and wide to hear his wisdom and see how great his kingdom was and see how great his wealth was, but it still wasn't completely fulfilled through him either. And so here we're getting a picture of the tension that we're going to see in the rest of the Psalms. There will be these kingly Psalms that will throwback and reference to these promises made to David and Solomon and their descendants that they would have this throne that would rule forever and this world dominance and representing God and in creation. And they're like, but God, it doesn't seem like it's happening. What's going wrong here? Why why haven't you completely fulfilled your promises? Some Psalms even ask, have you forgotten your covenant, God? What's happening in the world? Because God's people weren't fulfilling, they weren't representing him as they should. And there's this great analogy used. I want to give you a picture to kind of show you what it looks like here. A little kid wearing daddy's coat. Anybody ever tried, when you were a little kid, you tried your, your parents' clothes on? Maybe you've seen your kid do this with your clothes, and they kinda, they'll kind of just fall off, right? Because you're just not big enough to fill those clothes. 
And Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament commentator that uses that image for the, the hymns and the songs of the Psalms here. He says that they're like kingly robes being draped over the earthly kings and earthly representatives of Israel, but none of them have shoulders big enough to bear those robes. The robes keep sliding off, and they keep pointing us to the future, to the, the future king, the only king whose shoulders are big enough to bear the weight of these promises. Only Jesus is the one that perfectly fulfills everything that we're hoping in and looking for in these earthly kings. So God gives us these shadow kings, these, these kings that foreshadow and point to the future of this is what it's going to look like, and David did that a little bit, and Solomon did that a little bit, and other kings failed miserably to do that in Old Testament history. And that tension is pointing them ahead beyond a anointed one to the anointed one. Beyond an earthly Messiah and an earthly Christ to the Christ, the Messiah, who will rule and reign. And so the language continues here, this worldwide dominion. Verse 8, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This worldwide domination. He says in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This language of ruling with a scepter of iron or a rod of iron is repeated again and again in Revelation. Revelation, the book written to people who were suffering and who were being killed for their faith in the Roman Empire, Revelation is written to give them this big picture of the dominating King Jesus, to reassure them in their suffering that Jesus will rule, that you didn't die in vain suffering for him, but he is in charge of the universe. It's going to be okay. He will finally defeat evil. He will crush it with a rod of iron. And so we have this picture of him being the real king, the ultimate king. We're supposed to represent him. The kings of Israel were supposed to represent him. But he's the best representative of who God really is, being both absolutely holy and absolutely gracious and merciful. Only Jesus can fulfill that completely. Only Jesus' shoulders are big enough to wear that coat, to wear that robe as king. The apostles uh, invite us to name this psalm in particular as one that's fulfilled by Jesus. And so I just want to help you as you you read the Old Testament to recognize that there are specific psalms and Old Testament passages that are quoted then in the New Testament, and the apostles say with authority in the New Testament, this right here, this verse was fulfilled by Jesus. So in Acts chapter 4, that's made very clear. They're celebrating, they're actually kind of, when you read the context, it's like they're just kind of praising God, they're just singing out and quoting the psalm. They just bust out and start singing it, it appears in the text, and they're saying, this is Jesus, this is about Jesus. Herod and the rulers of the Jews were like the, like the leaders plotting against him, but Jesus has crushed them. And when you read the whole book of Acts, you see it's very clear that he has ultimate victory as king through his resurrection. That's where we see how big his shoulders are, that he's got shoulders big enough to carry the kingly robes of being the one that can rule and reign over all history and over all time and over the whole world. The resurrection is the promise. That's the picture, that his shoulders are big enough to carry that weight. He's the one that finally defeated sin and death. He defeated death, the last enemy. And so we have this picture of fulfillment in Jesus. Like I said, Acts 4 just names it. They're they're quoting Psalm 2, fulfilled in Jesus. Um, But what about the other echoes of kingship that we see in the Psalms? Um, A lot of commentators kind of see this in different ways, and so I just want to give you a general picture that 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in him. And so we want to be careful when we're interpreting the Bible. You know, you don't want to make like random jumps that are strange and weird. A a classic example of this is when uh, Rahab uh, puts a red cord out her window. You know, some uh, commentators would say, that red cord is symbolic of the blood of Jesus because it's red and that's supposed to remind us of Jesus. I'm like, well, I mean, I guess it can remind us of Jesus, but I don't know that that's really a prophecy. You know, I mean, you want to kind of be careful about how you talk about prophetic literature in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is clearly about Jesus. He's the only one that can fulfill it. He's the only true prophet. He's the only true king. He's the only true priest. And so we want to understand that whenever you're reading the Old Testament, you can recognize that there's this tension, there's this failure point, there's this human uh, lack and breakdown where it's not fully fulfilled until Jesus. He's the only one that fully fulfills it. And so we have places like Psalm 2 that are directly quoted and we're told that is an exact fulfillment. But as we read through the whole Psalms, the apostles encourage us to see him as the fulfillment. We, we should read this book and think, this book is about Jesus. He, he's the true king. He's the great king. He's the ultimate one that fulfills all of this. The last thing I want us to look at is that he's the only safe king. He's the only safe king. And we have this paradox here because we kind of live in a soft, um, kind of, no offense ladies, kind of feminized culture. You know, we kind of live in this soft culture where this is hard language for us. It talks about how strong and how powerful he is and he's going to crush his enemies. And some of us cringe at that. And so I want you to think about it this way. Like if you were being chased by bad guys and you come up on a big castle, you would think, hey, maybe that would be a good place for me to hide, right? Now, if you come up on a castle and you see, like, imagine this kind of castle with archers, you know, sticking arrows out, you wouldn't think of it as a warm and fuzzy place, though, right? I mean, it it would look scary. It would look menacing. Or think about a frontier fort, right? Those frontier forts where they would have these wooden spikes sticking out. Have you all ever seen those before? I mean, they're kind of scary looking. They're they're kind of off-putting, right? But that, that scariness is for the enemies. For those that the fort was designed for, it's a place of safety. And I want you to see that with Jesus. He's repeatedly referenced God and Jesus, our uh, anointed king, our savior. The God of the Bible is repeatedly told to us that he's, he's our refuge. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. And in context here, it's with him being really, really scary too, right? He's scary, but he's the only place that we can find safety. So, so read verse 10, 11, and 12 with me again. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So again, that wrap around. Uh, sometimes commentators call this an inclusio where you have Uh, Something at the end that echoes something at the beginning. So it's the idea of it's including all the stuff together as a whole. So this is where people would say, you know, this is what connects Psalm 2 with Psalm 1. There's other language as well, but Psalm 1 starts with, this is the blessed man. Psalm 2 ends with, this is the blessed man. Psalm 2 ends with, you're you're blessed if you take refuge in him. And it warns us, be be wise because he's scary and he'll crush his enemies. Remember the picture of Jesus from Revelation, the one with the tattoo and the blood dripping off him, and he's coming on a white horse? Like, Jesus is going to look like that someday. He is terrifying. 
and he's also still a place of safety. My father-in-law is actually here this morning, and my wife was telling me when she was a kid, her, her dad was a scary person, but she was never afraid of him, right? He's a former you know, drill instructor, and he's been a bouncer and done all kinds of things. You can meet him afterwards. He's a big, scary guy. But my kids, my wife, always felt safe in his arms. They knew at the same time he was a place of safety. And that's what God is like. He is a scary king that has a rod of iron. And he's really the only refuge that this world has to offer us. We'll run to other refuges. We'll run to other places. We'll, we'll try other places of safety. But we're encouraged to trust him. And again, as we think about sin and the patterns of rebellion, I told you earlier, I want you to associate your sin with, with rebelling against God and setting yourself up as king. Um, I want you also to think about it as a fortress that you're choosing. So when you're going from boyfriend to boyfriend or girlfriend to girlfriend, think that that's a fortress that I'm looking for. I think, well, this one hasn't worked out. The next one will be a good fortress. And the scriptures are calling you to go to God as your fortress. Or if you're seeking relief and pleasure, recognize that you're seeking that as your salvation, as your fortress, and you're going from one to the next, thinking that'll protect me from all the pain and the brokenness of this world. The Bible meets you where you are and says, yeah, this world is broken. It is painful. It is horrible. But God is your only place of safety. He's your only hope. He's your only refuge. And so the scripture again and again will call on you to honestly recognize, yes, this this life is hard. It is painful. It is difficult. But don't go running to these other refuges. Take refuge in your only safety, the king of the universe. Zephaniah 3.17 says, Not only is he strong to save, but he delights over us with singing. It's a beautiful picture of this both and. Not only is he absolutely holy and terrifying, but he's gracious and he gave himself for us. That's the God of the Bible. He hates sin because it's killing us. It's not giving us freedom, it's making us slaves, and he hates it. And one day he's going to crush it forever. But he loves us so much that he took the penalty of that sin upon himself on the cross. And he calls us to trust him, to run to him for safety. He's the only real king. I'm going to pray for us. And if if you'll bow your heads, I just want to read a few of the places in the Psalms where it encourages us to run to God as our refuge. I just want you to hear how this is going to be a repeated theme again and again. The great king that is our true Refuge. So I'll read these to you. Psalm 5 says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 17 says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Psalm 25 says, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Psalm 31 says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Psalm 31 says, O how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. And worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. Psalm 34 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God, we pray that you would help us to see you as the only true refuge in this world. Help us to seek you 
Help us to trust you. And God, as we do that, we, we know that you will use us to point others to you as well. We thank you for the promise you've given us through your son, Jesus. And we pray that we would be able to trust him by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll be up front if you want to meet me, or you can meet my father-in-law. He'll be up front as well. Um, If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to say hello if you get a chance. Come on up, or if you have any questions. God bless you. You're dismissed.